Culturally, we often live with the assumption that transformation and using transformation tools and strategies is about moving out of something that is broken or needs fixing, some position of failure, towards something that is better, towards something that is improved, towards something that is successful. I think we can all relate to the moments of thinking, if I just could achieve this thing, if I just had enough of this one resource, then everything would be great. But it's not always the case. In fact, sometimes transformation happens when we are successful, when we're on top of the world, and we realise that there are aspects of meaning, aspects of purpose, aspects of identity that are still missing despite our success. And that's what we'll dive into today with uh, my friend Jeff Goins, uh, a successful author and speaker. I'm looking forward to having him on this episode. Are you thirsty for inspiration and curious about the life-changing process of transformation? Welcome to The Transformationist. Whether you already know the transformation you're looking for or you're looking for guidance on the way there, these stories of hope will give you practical tips, plenty of encouragement and an invitation into real, life-giving transformation, whether you're transforming culture or becoming more yourself. Your story is welcome here. One of the things that's curious and also fascinating to me as part of the digitally connected world we live in is that often we have the opportunity now to draw closer to people whose work and public profile inspires or engages us uh, and the opportunity to actually draw near over time um, is far more accessible to us than what it has been before and today's guest is um, somebody who is a little bit like that for me. Um, Jeff Goins is a uh, marketer turned blogger, writer, author and now a a trainer and coach. You wear many hats uh, in the field of writing and creative work. And uh, as somebody whose work I've admired from a distance for a long time, uh, it's been a, a pleasure to draw a little bit closer over the last few months and especially great to have you on The Transformationist. So welcome, Jeff. Oh my goodness. Thanks for having me, Tash. <laughs> So um, I, I've given a somewhat clumsy description of what it is no, that it's beautiful. That... <laughs> I'm honored. It's amazing. I love this. I love your radio voice. We're in. A di we've never been in this mode before talking to each other. It's a blast. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm killing your character. Back to you. <laughs> it, no, it's completely fine. My my character is transparent. It is very true. I have the radio voice, uh, and it. it usually is. It's usually in high mode at the beginning of an episode, and uh, and gets you know kind of more and more relaxed into itself as the sh as the episode goes on. But thank you for uh, for um, breaking the fourth wall for the listeners. I just. Here. I just want you to host my podcast now. It's beautiful. I love it. <laughs> I, I will record voicemail off. messages for a small fee. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, I've given a clumsy description, uh, but how would you describe uh, who you are and what your work and contribution in the world is right now? My favorite vague thing to say is I like to make things. Um, because uh, if you list off all the things as you um, did now, I was like a trainer. I'm a trainer now. I guess I do. I do train. Uh, I have a friend who recently got into dolphin training. He runs an online business, and uh, him, he and his <laughs> wife are like, "We're gonna get some dolphins." And you know, there's a therapy for everything now, and there's dolphin therapy. 
so they they got some dolphins and uh, they're living in Arizona doing their dolphin therapy thing, you know, because if you're going to get a dolphin, you might as well do it in the desert. That's what I always say. I'm uh, desperately <laughs> trying to not just <laughs> dive into a million questions about the how and the why and the where of yeah, that and, and how it is it legal? Trip. How is it legal to acquire dolphins? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Probably not. Uh <laughs> Uh, it, it was like a two-year process, and they had to partner with, uh, you know, a zoo or something. I don't even know. Um, but what do I do? Uh, the long, I like to make things um, that inspire me, um, and and I do it for fun, and I charge for some of those things so that I can keep doing it. Um, the slightly longer but still simple version would be: uh, I write books based on things that I'm curious about. Uh, and then I also teach online courses uh, for writers and creatives and, and then do some some other things. But the kind of two pieces of what I do is I do creative work based on the ideas that I find interesting and that could be writing, speaking, um, blogging, podcasting, uh, whatever. And then the other side of that is I teach what I'm doing for people that are interested in doing that kind of work. And so how did you find your way into that? And what was that journey like? Because this wasn't always your your bread and butter kind of uh, nine to five activity, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, haven't I haven't really had a real job, but the closest thing that I ever had to a real job was right out of college. Uh, first of all, right out of college, I was in a band. So that was like super not a real job. But then I moved to Nashville and I was in a call center. I worked in a call center for about seven months um, for like, you know, $9 an hour. And that was the, like the closest thing I had to a real job where like you had to drive to an office, you got a lunch break, um, that whole deal, uh, get a paycheck, that kind of deal. And I did that for about seven months. Uh, didn't love it and actually ended up working for a nonprofit organization, which is really how we first got connected. Uh, worked mm -hmm. for a organization, an organization called Adventures and Missions, um, I fundraised my salary, um, uh, initially all of it and then, uh, like a percentage of it. And so the I business became, streak was always present for you, right? <laughs> <laughs> the begging streak was always present for me. <laughs> uh, sure. Um, yeah, I, I became a Christian in college and missions seemed like to be a missionary was like the best version of a Christian, I thought. So I figured I'll just do that. Uh, you know, I, none of this was conscious, but I look back and I go, I'm always trying to find the game that I can win and play mm -hmm, the best that I can. Mm -hmm. If I can't win, I'm going to quit and go do something else. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I'm, I'm dragging this out. I worked for a mission organization, a, a Christian nonprofit for almost seven years. I was the marketing director there and uh, I found my way into writing, blogging, eventually speaking and teaching uh, through that job where I learned about marketing. I didn't, I was never into marketing. I thought marketing was evil, uh, but I was hired as a writer and they said, we need help with our marketing. Do you want to do that? And I said, sure. I didn't have anything else to do. And I was very eager. I wanted to succeed at something and I wanted to succeed at something that felt meaningful to me. And so ministry was a way that I could do that. And I learned a lot about marketing, branding, writing, helping ideas spread. I was a student of Seth Godin's blog for many years. It was a great education in marketing. And I realized that marketing, as he defines it, is really just helping worthy ideas spread. 
And throughout the process of telling other people's stories, uh, including yours on occasion, Tosh, uh, once or twice, you know, helping other people's stories of going on mission projects and service projects, sharing those stories with our donor base and with other people with the intent of trying to get them to go on uh, mission trips with us, I started to feel this gnawing sense that maybe I had a story to tell too, and that maybe I could use all these things that I'd learned about Facebook groups and blogging and email marketing and somehow share my story or my ideas with the world. And that's how I ended up starting the blog and eventually building a business around this. Was there a uh, was there a period of time in your life where people referred to you as you know that that social media guy, the social media guru? I feel like for for a period of time, anybody who worked in marketing and did anything to do with Facebook um, had to had to kind of bear the weight of that unfortunate title. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I um I remember always struggling with labels, even like what to put on my business card. Um, and, Why? And I remember- I remember like that was really important to me and not knowing what to put on there. Um, first of all, working at a nonprofit, you wear a lot of different hats. And I remember the conversation that I had with my boss um, when I became the marketing director. I was hired as a writer and uh, I was working for a visionary. And he said, yeah, you're a writer. And I was like, okay, writer, you know? <laughs> so like, I, I was like, am I a staff writer? Am I a copywriter? Like, what do I put on the business card? Um, and, and, and then one day we're, we were at a conference and he said, oh, by the way, I'd worked there maybe almost two years. He goes, oh, by the way, you're the marketing director. You know that, right? And I didn't know that. I'd been doing some email marketing for the organization. I was doing a lot of writing and I was just getting more and more uh, marketing uh, tasks handed down to me. And he was like, yeah, you're the marketing director. I was like, I'm the marketing director. Got to change the business card. So my job was always changing. Um, and I liked that. It was really exciting. But I, when I started um, doing the blogging thing for myself, I, I remember meeting people going, what do I say that I do? And um, I don't, I don't, maybe somebody referred to me as the social media guy. Um, I remember even like calling myself a marketing director felt disingenuous to me. Like I, mm. I wanted to be like a storyteller or something. <laughs> and for years, especially when I started this thing kind of as a side hustle, not knowing what it would turn into, like, what do I call myself? Um, and eventually I settled on writer. Um, but that was a, a struggle to get there for sure. Mm. I, I relate in many ways to the the business card struggle, right? Do you do you bullet point the four different things that are the key activities? Yeah. You know, do I do I identify myself as the strategist or the writer or the transformation coach or am I the whiskey girl? You know, that that is a, a lifelong battle. But I think it I think it becomes this ongoing challenge to settle into a, a title or a way of describing yourself so that other people can understand who you are or who you're at least trying to be. And that, that's, been, that's been the case for me. What was the importance of the job title or the definition on the business card for you? What, what relevance did it have? What was meaningful about it? Um, well, uh, looking back, I understand that I was searching for an identity and I've always done that. I've always done something and then identified with that something and said, I'm this thing you know, and it causes a temporary thrill. And then eventually 
fair amount of suffering and anxiety because now you're this thing and you can't be anything other than this thing. And if, if I stop doing this thing, then I, I lose who I am. Um, at the time, you know, a, tw- a 25-year-old, I just wanted some sense that like I was doing something that mattered and I was someone who mattered. And at that age, it was easier for me to just get a title uh, and go, oh, this thing matters. It's important. Therefore, I'm important than it was to like dig and do the deep work of going, wait, maybe I'm important and significant just because I am. Um, so I was searching for a reason to feel significant, especially as a college graduate, um, not having a lot to show for uh, what I'd accomplished thus far. Like I was pretty driven uh, and yet um, I studied Spanish and religion in college and then I took that very practical degree and then went and <laughs> played music for a year. I made $8,000 that year. And then from there, I go work for a nonprofit as what, a blogger? I remember people asking me like, so you run a blog? And I was like, this does not sound cool. I want to do something that sounds cool. And so when I became the marketing director, I was like, everybody, like, I think most people would agree that you know, like this feels like authoritative. And so- you know, I felt good about that. But I remember even going like, no, no, I'm not the marketing director. I'm the director of marketing. It has more letters. Therefore, I think it's more important. <laughs> none of these, uh, none of these things are conscious, but I, I literally quibbled over things like that. No, 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 no. Director of marketing. I want the director part to come first because y- you need to know that I direct things. <laughs> but how interesting that the, that the other, that the external perspective is the filter by which all of those things become defined, you know? How will you know me based on whether or not you think I'm the marketing director versus the director of marketing? Um, but clear in that, like in that example, without overanalyzing it, to go, oh, it's the, it's the, the status and the, the level of achievement or the idea of um, having achieved some sort of success pinnacle that is the dominant theme as opposed to necessarily the specific work and task that you are doing. Um, tell me about what, uh, what it feels like like, um, and I'll say, I'll bring it into the present tense. Um, tell me a little bit about what it feels like to be in those moments where you've defined yourself in such a way that you feel like, oh, now I'm trapped or now I'm stuck in this thing. Has that been something that you've experienced often? Yeah, I always, I always experience that um, or have experienced that quite a bit. I'll do something, I'll succeed at it, I'll get pigeonholed in it and I'll freak out. <laughs> what does freaking out look like for you? Um, so I always wanted to be cool and I was never very cool. Have you ever seen the movie Almost Famous? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I love that scene where the, the kid, whatever his, his name is, the main, the main character, the protagonist is, um, hanging out with Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's like this cool radio disc jockey. And, and, and he's, and and like, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is, is telling the kid like how to, hang out with this famous band and, 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 and he goes like, he's like, they're gonna, you know, they're gonna do all these things. They're gonna, you know, there's gonna be women. There's gonna be this, there's gonna be that. Don't be, you know, distracted by any of it. Um, and, and he's like, you're got, you're gonna want to impress them cause they're cool. And he goes, dude, I've seen you. You are not cool. And the kid goes, I know, I know. <laughs> you know, he's like, I know I'm not cool. <laughs> like, I'm that kid, you know? Um, and um, I always got good grades. 
I realized this was something that I could do and succeed at. So I did it really well. And there was, um, I attached significance to that and, and I, an identity to that and said, I can do that. You know, every kid I think wants to find something that they're good at and that they can feel good about. And, um, so in middle school, I won the sixth grade spelling bee and the winning word was acquiescence. And <laughs> I beat an eighth grader and he cried on the way home, which was the only time I ever made an eighth grader cry. And I kind of liked that. Like I remember hearing that he cried on the bus and like smiling a little bit. And I was this chubby, fat, um, long-haired, red-headed, uh, pale-skinned kid who wore too many layers of flannels because this was in the early 90s. And I remember getting a haircut one time where I, I got bangs. And I my first job in sixth grade was delivering newspapers. And I had this uh, elderly man on my route who kept mistaking me for a girl. And like the first time, Crushing. the first time he gave me a tip, you know, cause at the end of the month you go around and, and collect, he said, you are an enterprising young lady and I have no doubt you'll be an entrepreneur someday. And- Well, he was right about 80%. He was right about one thing, yeah. <laughs> and um, I didn't correct him in the moment cause I was so stunned and he was giving me money and you know, maybe I, I felt he was gonna take it back or something. And so, uh, I just kind of let that happen. And then I felt like I had to live with that. Like he kept calling me a girl after that. And I felt embarrassed to correct him at that point. So like I lived with the identity of being a girl to this guy for like six months until I just, I was so timid, you know, I didn't want to, um, uh, like correct an adult and I didn't want to, I didn't want the conflict. I was afraid of it for some reason. And so I just quit the paper out. I thought that was easier. <laughs> Anyway, so like this kid wins a school spelling bee and every, you know, 250 kids at Indian Creek Middle School applaud. And that had never happened before. I'd never played sports. I'd never done, I'd gotten good grades, but you never get applause for getting good grades. And so I was like, oh, I can do this. Words. I can, I can do that. And this is a long answer to your short question, but I became the spelling bee kid. And then the next year, um, everybody's like, you got this, you got this. So I didn't study because I thought I'm I'm this thing now. You mm. know, it's a, it's a great example of like fixed mindset uh, versus mm -hmm. uh, growth mindset. I'm like, no, I got this. And I lost to a sixth grader. And I was like, screw this. I'm not doing the spelling bee anymore. And um, lots of uh, lots of stories that I could tell during middle school is, is true for most people, I think. But one of the one of the things that I did is I was tired of being a smart kid. And so after I left eighth grade and went into ninth grade, which is high school, I um, intentionally got bad grades so that I could fit in with the cool kids. Cause I realized like all the cool kids weren't that smart. There's a level of genius required to <laughs> intentionally <laughs> perform poorly yeah. in academic study yeah. when, you are a, when you're a smart kid. Uh -huh. Like that's, that's a special skill. Yeah. So I, I got a D in shop class, uh, <laughs> just to tank the whole GPA. And, and I did it for like a semester and my dad's like, what is this? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. They must've gotten it wrong. And I just, I got so afraid of not being smart. First of all, it didn't work. I wasn't cool. I still got, you know, beat up and made fun of, um, and girls still turned me down. And so I, I got so afraid of not being smart that I just went back to being the smart kid. Um, but 
Y- yeah, uh, that's an example of like, I was smart, therefore I couldn't be cool. And I did it, and I was like, I could be cool, you know? And um, and I was willing to let go of the smart thing because I didn't feel like that's who I was. It was just a thing that I did. But when it didn't make me cool, I kind of picked up the smart thing again because I might as well have some identity versus none at all. Mm-hmm. How closely is um, is that? I, I mean, obviously, identity formation as it happens in adolescence and emerging adulthood is such a fascinating topic. You know, the idea of what's nature versus nurture and and what of our contextual um, what of our contextual experience really pushes us or 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 drives us towards exploring certain avenues. But I'm really interested by these two themes that that um, that recur. Um, often in your storytelling, and you've been pretty open about this. This connection between the the drive or the desire to succeed or to win, and your uh, your kind of self evolution or your journey of identity. Um, if we kind of move forward into into future um, or the present tense, at least, um, what have you learned about how those things are connected for you? Identity and. Success? Is that is that the question? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was doing a podcast with Ian Cron um, where he was interviewing me, and I didn't I, I went into that thinking, I'm just gonna promote my book and it's gonna be great. And <laughs> <laughs> and I should have okay. known. <laughs> For people Sp- listening, yeah. Ian Cron is an an expert in the Enneagram, which is a f- it's a frequent pop-up subject on this particular uh, on this particular podcast. But I think on just about any podcast um, to do with uh, dare I say like any any podcast that touches white evangelicals at this point in time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, we're we're yeah we're hanging out, and yeah, he's, Ian is also a. Uh, an Episcopal uh, priest and a psychotherapist. And so you sit down with a guy like that and your secrets are going to come out. Mm-hmm. And I said this thing and he's like, wait, 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 say that again. And I didn't even know what I was saying. I knew not what I was doing. And I um, said this thing and I'm listening to myself saying this thing going, whoa, that's, <laughs> that's interesting. You know, so we're like doing therapy. And I said to him, I said, how, in front of a live studio audience. Yeah. How other people see me dictates often how I see myself. Mm. How other people see me is often how I see myself. And this was something that I started to become aware of when I um, quit my job working at the nonprofit, started writing full-time, started to achieve levels of success that I had not anticipated making money that I had not anticipated, uh, experiencing uh, fame, you know, and and I mean in a very relative internet-based kind of way, but I would go places and people would recognize me from my blog, people I'd never met before, or I'd be walking down the street, albeit in Franklin, Tennessee, and somebody would go, hey, that's that's Jeff Goins. And um, there was a part of me when I started this journey of you know, writing on my blog late at night or early in the morning that was fantasizing about this, never would have admitted it, but was fantasizing about people recognizing me and feeling important. You know, the same part of me that liked how it felt when an auditorium full of sixth, seventh, and eighth graders applauded me for spelling acquiescence. Um, I liked that. And I, but I had reached a point where I had done all the things that I thought would make me feel that way, feel important. And I still didn't feel that way. 
And it began this process of unraveling what I thought mattered because I was just sort of disillusioned with the whole thing. Made a million bucks, you know, set a goal to make a million bucks, thought if I make a million bucks, that'll be cool and I'll feel something. And I wasn't even clear on that, but I'll feel something and it'll be great. Made a million bucks, shrugged about it and said, I guess I got to make 2 million next year. Hmm. And I'm, and I sort of caught myself going, what? You really, you think doubling it, doubling the dosage is going to change the drug? You know, like you, you didn't like it that much. So why double down on it? And what was most upsetting about my experience with getting the things that I wanted, which is how I define success. Success is just getting what you want, mm -hmm. is I didn't hate it. Because I thought, you know, like if it's really terrible, if this like becomes VH1 behind the scenes rehab story, then great. Then, then I'll know that success is bad and money is bad and all of my Midwestern middle-class ethics that I was born with, which is basically try hard, do well, but don't do too well. You don't want anybody to think you're better than them. Right. It would prove all those things true, which is that, you know, rich people are dishonest and success will ruin your life. And uh, I'm sure there was like, you know, religious influences there as well. And it wasn't terrible. It was just, I was like, I'm still me. And that was the mm -hmm. most upsetting thing of it all is I didn't like myself very much. And I thought if I can... If I could achieve success, then I will become a successful person. And then maybe I can like myself more. And when I kept achieving these things, I kept getting more and more disillusioned with the process. And so I began to realize like, I am looking at myself through everybody else's eyes, but my own. I'm, I'm performing, but I'm doing it for myself. Like I'm doing it so that I can like myself. And it's not working. Mm, so what's mm -hmm. missing? And so that, uh, that insight moment that you talk about, uh, in terms of what you're really describing is that, is that recognition that, that you that the meaning you have ascribed to everything external is missing from the meaning that is, that is ascribed to your own self or your own sense of, of, of what is internal. Where does that insight take you? Um, so, I mean, you have, you have kind of a, a, a breakthrough moment in the, in the recording with Ian, <laughs> recording slash therapy <laughs> session, yeah. um, and which is available on the typology podcast for all to listen to. Um, and then it begins the, the unraveling. What happens as a result of that? Because in, in the transformation work that I do, um, we, we always talk about, you know, the insight needs, the insight when you encounter it immediately needs some sort of, you know, uh, reactive or responsive action to bring it into reality. Um, otherwise, it's just kind of like a, you know, it's a false orgasm for the brain where you just kind of feel like you've had an insight and something's really changed, but nothing really changes. Yeah. Um, and so what happens for you as you take that insight into reality? Um, what is what is the change that is going on? I mean, I think the first thing that I did was I just chased another illusion. I just rebranded. <laughs> Substitution addiction, right? Quit yeah, smoking, you don't, take you don't up know drinking. that you're doing this, but like um, it, I always had a drug. And so I chased being smart for a while. I didn't like that. So I chased being cool for a while. I was always trying to be something but myself, right? So then I get to college. Mm -hmm. I become a Christian. I chase being like the best version of a Christian I can be. So I pray and I fast and I 
practice spiritual disciplines and I try to get the Holy Spirit and try to get this gift and that gift and this thing and that thing. And like, I'm all in because I'm trying to, to perform the best way at this that I can so that through external effort, I can get something internally that I feel like I'm missing. Um, then I go do the nonprofit thing and I do that really well and I'm addicted to that uh, job. And then I find this other thing that I'm better at and um, I'm like, I'm making more money doing it. And I feel uncomfortable about going from like ministry to for-profit business. And so then I like start giving away a lot of money to foundations and doing charity work and building buildings in Africa. And and now now that's the game. You know, how can I give away the most amount of money? Um, and- Generosity is definitely a shortcut to becoming a very important person. Yeah, yeah. Like I, it, it's- and every time I switch, I think of it like um, uh, getting off of a train at a train station. This train is taking me someplace that I don't want to go. So I get off of the money train and I get on the philanthropy train. And I did this for a while. And I, I did this with success. So when I had this insight with Ian, I restructure my business and I realized like, I don't need to keep scaling my business. I don't need to keep growing. I just need to make a decent income and have freedom to enjoy my life and do creative work. And even then, it felt like something was missing. Because now I've I've gotten on the train of I don't care about that. And I'm building a whole status around I'm above that and beyond that. I don't really care about it. But I do care about it. I care about people knowing that I don't care about it. <laughs> and and what you know what happened, Tosh, was I kept getting off of trains, walking, you know, across the platform and getting on another train. I was doing this kind of unconsciously. Uh, mm. a friend of mine I was talking to yesterday who does kind of similar work as you do, I think. Um and he does it uh, primarily with with people um, coming out of closets sexually and and waking up and realizing, oh my gosh, I'm gay or whatever. And um, he always warns them. He says, now, as you come out of this closet, be careful that you don't go into another closet. Mm. I never heard anybody talk about this, but it's very fascinating. It resonated with me. He says, because what will happen is often you come out of the closet and you say, hey, I'm gay or bi or trans or whatever. And then that community, there are people in that community that say, okay, here's what you need to know now. Here's how you need to act. Here's what's going to happen. And, and he says, sometimes what'll happen is you just get another group of people telling you, this is how you need to behave to fit in with us. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. he says, that's not the point. The point was you felt like there was a part of yourself that you couldn't share with the world. And because you were in the closet, like it couldn't come out. So don't step out of one closet and get into another one. And that's what I was doing. You know, I was, I was opening the closet, walking across the living room and then getting into another closet. And then Eventually what happened was I, I woke up to the fact that that's what I was doing. I was building another status around something else that I was doing, building an identity around another activity. And one day I just stand in the living room and go, I can just be here. I don't have to, I don't have to, I can stay on the train platform. I don't have to travel anywhere. I don't have to go anywhere. I can just be here. I can be me and maybe that's enough. And I was deathly afraid of that, but I thought it was worth a try. And how's it going? <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, that was that was last year. And that was another conversation with Ian where I kept um, jumping into another closet and then feeling, the closet analogy is a really great one because a closet is a stifling, dark, confusing mm. place to live. It's not where you live. Um, and, and I felt that and I kept, exchanging one identity for another one. I'm the this guy, I'm the that guy, I'm the that guy. And 
And I told him, I said, maybe, and, and I was still chasing another illusion. We're hit, hanging on his back porch last year. And um, I said, nothing I have done has felt like a success. Hmm. And I said, that's weird, right? Like I know objectively, like if you tell me, Bob, not Jeff, did all these things, I go, go Bob, look at him. He really made something of himself, you know? <laughs> and I don't, I don't feel that way. And I know it's weird that I don't feel that way. Um, I said, that's, that's weird. Right. And he said, that's something. <laughs> and he basically said, you're going to have to figure that out. But my sense is changing your business model again, changing your business card, your job description is not, it's going to make this thing temporarily, this feeling of emptiness, it's going to make it go away for a minute. And then you're going to feel it again because you're going to be stuck mm -hmm. in another closet going, how did I end up here? This is not where I want to be. I want to be free to just be me without a label, without pressure, without the fear of if I just stop for a minute, that's somehow not going to be enough. And, and so what, what began to happen, I don't even think of it as something that I was doing, but what seemed to happen to me um, over the course of about nine months is um, the only thing I was doing was nothing. And I was <laughs> very consciously doing nothing, meaning going for walks, um, just being, I, I, I wouldn't even say I was praying. I tried to meditate a little bit, like, but it was just another way to perform. And I just had to like stop. Mm. I would listen, I started, I listened to some books for a while and then I stopped doing that. And I just like, I was just there, you know, I listened to nature, God, uh, everything. Um, and I, I would, you know, do these, I would experience that. Um, and, and then I would like come back into my life and I would go, oh, that doesn't matter. Wow. That was just a story that I was telling myself. I don't have to do that to be me. And I started to see what I now understand to be illusions. I, I would look at something in my life and go, I remember talking to a friend who has about $6 million in the bank. And I said, what's the difference between that and like having just a little bit more than enough? Like, do, do you live your life differently? He goes, nope, there's no difference. Um, now, the, the, the real difference is he can go buy a yacht and I can't. Um, but I was like, isn't it interesting that like he just has a bunch of more zeros in his bank account. And I was telling myself a story, which is when I have that many zeros, I can feel this way. I said, could I just feel that way now, which is content and like I have enough and I still got to pay bills and stuff. There's still the reality of I've got to do something, but can I have the feeling that you have now at 38 years old, retired from everything? Can I have that now or not? He goes, you know, I got all this and I still didn't feel that way. And I realized that feeling was a choice. And so I began to realize how much the story that I told myself about everything was just a story. And at any point I could choose to just tell myself a different story. Right. And and at that moment, I mean, you, you've cracked into probably one of the most powerful tools of transformation, which is the ability to reframe a narrative mm. and to understand that, that, that we can actually, you know, write another story. Hey, it's time for the ad read. Thanks so much for joining in this episode of The Transformationist. I so appreciate you for being part of this journey and I'd love to hear from you. Why not head along to thetransformationist.org or join the Facebook group, The Transformationist with Tash McGill and share your thoughts about this episode or any episode. Ask questions and get to know people in The Transformationist community. Thanks again. And now back to the episode.
uh, what's fascinating to me is how um, is how success or the drive to succeed or the drive to to achieve some sort of external marker can be such a motivator and such um, such a gas pedal for transformation, but it can so easily take you to places very quickly that are not necessarily headed in the direction of your most authentic self. Mm. Um, and so that journey of becoming yourself, I think, is really um, very challenging because it's it's in many respects the opposite of um, of finding your way into a successful business card uh, title or you know a certain a certain number of dollars in the bank or a certain number of followers, subscribers, customers, you know, size of your business, whatever those external markers are, it's in fact the very opposite of that. It's a journey kind of stepping uh, stepping back into yourself and stripping a lot of those things away, which I think probably feels a lot more um, vulnerable for a lot of people and particularly when most of life has been a, ser- a search for external identity. Yeah. Which I think for, um, yeah, go ahead. No, you go, you go for it. I mean, I, I, I talk about this in terms of analogies and metaphors a lot just because in some ways I feel like we're talking about something that um, in some ways transcends uh, rational understanding. You know, we're talking about meaning, purpose, uh, you know, life, truth with a capital L or T. And um, I, I, I remember thinking none of this matters and yet it's okay. Like I can still do all of this. And, and that was the first time where I had an epiphany or an insight about life that I didn't feel like I had to burn down the old life to live the new life. Now there was, mm-hmm. there was some burning down, but it was really like, uh, like last summer I was feeling a lot of angst and so I didn't know what was going on. But everything that I had done um, to sort of build a life for myself uh, just didn't seem to be working anymore. Um, so like I, I scaled the business back quite a bit because I was tired of being in meetings and having this pressure on myself. Like it was just triggers. They were environmental triggers to be someone that I didn't know I wanted to be anymore. You know, the successful, driven, internet marketer, leader kind of guy. And so I just started... Um, just making room in my life for that. Left a mastermind that I'd been a part of for six years just because I felt like I was going in a different place. And I was really starting to trust myself, which I'd never, ever done before. And it was new. Oh, that's curious. It was new territory for me. It's still very new and, and scary for me. Um, again, if the way you see yourself is the way other people see you, how could you ever trust yourself? Mm. You're always more interested in what other people say and what their advice is and what they're going to think of you. So in that, just diving into that for a second, does that mean that the role of external uh, mentors and patrons and, you know, people who have, um, you know, opened doors for you and, and, and sort of created those platforms, has that, has that been something that's been a really important part of your, you know, career development up till now? Absolutely. Given how important. Yeah. 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 Interesting. You know, and I think it's, I think it's essential in the same way that it's my job to tell my kids in many ways how to live life right now. Now, I, I really think we're discovering that together. I mean, it's it's changed. This has changed the way a parent. Um, but it's okay for me to provide some security and structure for them, just as a framework. You know, just as a like, hey, try this on so that you can figure out, you know, what life is like and what you what you learn here and and how this works. But I, I always try to be very um, uh, you know, I guess conscious is a good word, uh, about it when I'm like 
talking with my kids about rules, especially my seven-year-old, like, um, hey, buddy, here's why you can't run across the cul-de-sac, which is a street, without talking to me about it, uh, asking, and it, I'm like, it's okay. At some point, you can do this, but I want you to know that cars come and like the street is not bad, but I may act like the street's bad for a little while because I don't want you to get hit by a car. You know, that sort of thing. Like we're, mm -hmm. this is not a universal badness of the street right now, uh, you know, for all eternity. But right now, the street is a dangerous place for you to be. So we need to just be aware of that. And that's why this rule exists. Um, and, and so I, anyway, I, I guess I'm saying like, I understand the importance of teachers, mentors, rules as, um, guiding lanes to get you to your own lane where you eventually kind of get to make up the rules for yourself and what your life looks like. Um, so there was definitely a season where, um, mentorship, apprenticeship, having other people believe in me was essential. And I probably sought that out earnestly um, uh, because of the fact that I was always just aware of what people were thinking about me and didn't want to um, upset anybody or disappoint anyone. And I, I think it's an advantage to have mentors early in your life that help you kind of figure things out. I think that's um, really, really helpful and a good thing for a lot of people there was something very unhealthy in me that was causing me to do that. And where I find myself now as a 35, almost 36 year old man is going, do I still need that the way that I needed that 10 or 15 or even 20 years ago? And here, this is where I was a year ago going, I don't want to do this anymore. But everybody that I admire says you should do this this way. And, mm. and then, you know, what's crazy is um, I would meet some of these people who had mentored me. And I remember talking to Michael Hyatt, who was a um, very uh, influential uh, person uh, early on in this journey for me and very helpful in terms of uh, my own success and trajectory. And uh, Michael is the former publisher of a, a former, former CEO of a publisher and a, a well-known um, leadership teacher and author. And um, we were meeting for lunch and I was like trying to do everything that he was doing, but like half as well. <laughs> you know, 25% as well. Because <laughs> it turns out when you yeah. run a company of, you know, hundreds of people and then start your own little internet marketing company and you got 20, 30, 40 people, like that's that's no big deal. And I'm like stressing out with a dozen employees, you know, going, I hate this, I hate my life, what am I doing? And I remember meeting with him for lunch, basically saying, and I had been saying this for years. I mean, this was a long time coming. I don't want to run a company. I want to focus on my craft. And he's like, that's what you should be doing you should do that. And I realized I had projected on all these influences what I thought they expected of me because it's what I expected of me based on what I, you know, like based on my observation of what they were doing. And so yeah. here I have one of my mentors saying, don't do what I'm doing, do you. Um, so I have always sought that out, but the past year or so has been a really interesting experience of going, can I let go of the fear of what'll they think and trust where I want to go next, where I want to take this journey next. Have you found people along this new part of the journey in the last year who are able to help you um, dismantle the shoulds and the oughts um, and the external expectations that you are projecting? Or is it actually a journey that you have to do 
in somewhat of an isolation to actually learn how to practice acting on your own trust and intuition. I did have to like go in the cave for a little bit and just be with my thoughts and inclinations and questions and desires and just go, can I trust this? Is this okay? Uh, and so I did a little bit of that solo, which was really good for me. Um, but as I was starting to have questions about, um, does this matter? You know, does it matter how much money I make? Does it matter if I succeed at this or not? Does it matter if I work another day in my life? Does any of this really matter? Um, I did have to make room. And so I did silence some voices that I knew were going to trigger old habits, old ways of being in, in a way that I didn't want. So I did have to go, uh, can't be around that person right now, or I can't be a part of this group or just be in the space right now because it's going to cause me to revert back to who I used to be in the same way that like, if you came from a dysfunctional family and you're getting healthy, um, you can only spend so much time at the family reunion before it starts to suck you back into that way of being. Mm -hmm. and, and I think you eventually <laughs> can be healthy enough to just hang out there and be fine uh, for a while. And I just wasn't there yet. But what's interesting is I did sort of cut myself off from a lot of outside influences for a while, like a few months. And every once in a while, I'd bump into some old friend from somewhere and they were like a guide on this hero's journey and I would just, they go, what's going on? And I would just like blurt some crazy thing out and, and they would go, yeah, that's awesome. Good for you. You know? And, and there were like three or four people that popped up all kind of around the same time where I was making some big shifts just in how I was living and viewing the world, uh, and thinking about life. And, um, I wasn't looking for this. It wasn't confirmation bias. Like somebody that I hadn't seen in two or three years came back into my life and they were like just the voice that I needed to hear to keep going. At a time when if somebody would have said, at that moment, you're crazy, I would have said, you're right. Yeah, I'm crazy. I need to just kind of go back to the old way I was doing. This was a nice little vacation, but I've got to, I got to go back to, to that person. And and that didn't happen at, at just the right time when I was questioning if I was going too far. I literally met an old friend who was in town for a conference. We were hanging out on my back porch, sipping wine together. And he said, no, 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 you're not going too far. You haven't gone far enough. Keep going. And these run-ins became more and more serendipitous that I just began to trust that like, whatever this is, wherever I'm headed, I can trust it. Hmm. It's, you have this uh, this historical narrative of, and you've spoken about it um, here, like the, this ongoing story of, you know, what I would call the human evolution, um, as opposed to, you know, complete transformation from, you know, one state to the next to the next. It's kind of this evolving story of who you are and the various things that you that you do. What I'm curious about uh, is that if if success or or attaining that uh, external measure and external feedback on your own identity was such a driver in some of those previous transformations. Uh, how how is it different in this journey, which is more of an inward journey back to yourself? How is external feedback different? Um, how is the how is the journey of transformation? I mean, some of the things as you were describing it, uh, as you were describing some of the some of the things that you've um, done or ways that you've responded to change in your business or in your environment. You know, it's been fast, it's been nimble, um, and and there have been certain kind of 
patterns to it. And I'm curious about whether or not this this kind of transformation that you've experienced in the last year or so um, has a different shape or look or feel to it um, based on it going in a slightly different direction. Yeah, um, I think there was a period where I thought this is just another thing. This is just another infatuation, um, another obsession. Because I've always been really restless and curious about the next thing. Um, and I felt like maybe that's this is just this. I'm just, you know, I'm into this now, whatever this is. And um, and it'll pass and it'll fade and and you'll realize that's just one more layer of clothing that you've put on you. And so I did question it for a bit. Um, I think what has been really encouraging for me is the whole thing feels different. I've never felt this way before um, in terms of lots of peace and comfort with myself without needing to do or prove anything. And in the past, anytime I would make a shift, I wouldn't even call it a transformation, um, I had a lot of anxiety making this shift and then immediately afterwards. Now I have this thing that I have to protect and if I don't protect it, um, I don't do it right, I will I will cease to be this thing and I will cease to be me. And so I was, you know, the big difference uh, for me is when I would achieve something, I would always look for all the ways that it was still wrong. And, and I would look for voices to confirm that. And I would find them. And then I would feel bad about it. And I would use that shame to keep driving me towards something else. And so it could be like, I launch a best-selling book. This is you know a real example. I launch a, a book that sells 15,000 copies uh, before the book comes out and hit, it hits every single bestseller list except for the New York Times bestseller list. I'm, <laughs> I'm very disappointed in the book and I make a goal right. next time it's gonna be a New York Times bestseller. Um, or I see um, somebody succeeding on the business side of things and and I've just launched a best-selling book and they just, you know, launched a course and made half a million dollars and I've never done that before. And I go, I did this, but I'm not doing that. I'm gonna go do that. Mm-hmm. And so anytime I'd achieve something, I would feel okay about it for like two seconds. And then I would go chase something else. And I just got tired of that. And I also got tired of that game. So many entrepreneurial leadership driven kind of people that I know, not everybody, but a lot of people that I know go, well, that's the game. You just got to keep finding the next thing. And Mm. and I just got so tired of that because I was tired of who I was doing that. It's like, you know, running a race and you're constantly moving the finish line. And I, and, and I woke up one day and I said, I'm a swimmer. I don't even want to be running. (laughs) I don't even want to run the race. This is a different (laughs) kind of thing. And um, there was something that you asked earlier that I, I think I, I did, never came back to, but I was talking about metaphors. And mm. um, I think um, there is this quote that I ran across by Rumi um, that describes part of how I felt about what happened this past year. And, and the quote is you know, from a poem, which is how Rumi does. Uh, jars of spring water are not enough anymore. Take us down to the river. Jars of spring water are not enough anymore. Take us down to the river. What I experienced 
was what I'd experienced in the past was I get a jar of spring water and I you know drink it or look at it or whatever and I go that's cool I want another one and I'd been collecting jars my whole life and one day I just let I let go all the jars and they all shattered before me and I thought I've lost everything that I've ever done and everything that I ever am just by letting go of of the belief in it as something mm-hmm. and I wandered around and found the river and I thought oh this is what I've really been seeking. And it just endlessly flows. And I can, I, I can now take a jar and come down here and fill it up and go, great, I got, I got some water, but I don't have the river. And, mm-hmm. and that's what I was experiencing was I would achieve something and I go, I got it. And, and I was missing life. I was missing the fact that just around the corner, there's a stream that's just flowing by and you're missing it because you're trying to capture it, hold on to it, cling to it. and what that has done for me is I can still enjoy the jar of spring water. That's great. That's fine. That's the success. That's the thing that you achieve and you go, hey, that's great. Um, but it, but I, I am hesitant to attach any more meaning to it than that because I've seen the river. I've experienced it. And I don't think I'm, I'm fooling myself because it's, it's a different experience. Mm. So if I can ask, how do you think – how do you think finding the river um, to dive into the to dive into the metaphor? How do you think finding the river and planting yourself beh- beside the river um, has or is going to um, affect your curiosity? Because it's curiosity that has led you to you are a writer, but but what as you said, what you write about are the things that you're curious about. And so, how does this change? the way that that curiosity is fueled in your life? How does it change your approach to the creative output? I think it humbles me. And I love even the question, like, you say, find the river and you plant yourself by the river. Well, I would be careful with that, right? Because eventually the river leads to a lake, which leads to an ocean. You know, I, it, like it, it, it can keep going. And so I, I think of in terms of water analogies a lot in a, in a lot of different ways. <laughs> Um, for some reason, I don't particularly like, like swimming or anything, but, uh, but I think, um, I, success for me was like, um, swimming in a, in an Olympic style pool, you know, and, and really trying to get to that end of the end of the pool as quickly as possible and timing myself and, you know, and, and dealing with the chlorine and, and all this stuff. And then, you know, one day you stumble upon the ocean. Or you realize the pool is, you know, right right in the ocean somehow. And and you go, this is so much bigger and more vast than I could ever comprehend. When I was looking at the pool, the jar of spring water, what have you, I thought I could control it and understand it. And so you stumble upon something like a river or an ocean and it and it just keeps going. I think the game changes in terms of success, achievement, work, life. Um, I'm not trying to contain this thing anymore. I'm I'm not even trying to know it. I'm just trying to experience it. And so from a curiosity standpoint, I go, well, where else does the river go? I don't have to plant. I don't want to plant myself by, by the river. I want to see where it ends. And does it end? Uh, I heard this quote by Richard Rohr recently, and he said, a mystery is not something that cannot be understood. It is something that can be endlessly understood meaning you mm. never stop understanding it. You are always mm-hmm. 
growing an awareness and understanding of this thing. Um, and that's, I mean, that's what we experience when we experience awe, being out in the ocean or, um, uh, you know, listening to a piece of music or sitting underneath the stars. We, we have all had these like transcendent moments in our lives, I think, where we go, this is way bigger than I ever thought it was. And how could you not be curious about a life like that where you go, this just keeps going. And I think creativity is that way. The well of creativity, what I'm capable of, just keeps going. And so anytime I, I, I put it in a jar, I'm missing it. Like the river, the river is not outside of me. It's inside of me. And every time I dive deeper into it and try to tap into something you know, beyond what I think I can do. And I surprise myself. And we all do this on occasion. You know, you can call it lots of different things, flow, creativity, um, love. You know, we're capable of doing more than we think. And so to just begin with that assumption, maybe there's more here than I ever thought. That's it. That's it. That's enough. So you can do more than you think you can do. Um, and and just try not to get tripped up on on where you think that ends because it just might keep going. Doesn't mean you don't have to practice and learn and grow and fail. That's great. That's fine. Um, but I had this very fixed mindset about everything, which is nope. I'm this way, and this is how I'm going to be. And I've got my jar of water, and and I'll spend the rest of my life collecting jars of water. And you just don't need to do that. You can, um, you can just keep going and. I don't. I mean, I don't know how to not be curious about life when that's that's how it works. Is the thing that you thought you were trying to capture and stick in your pocket and hold on to forever, this thing called achievement or success, um, is like a, a, a tiny speck in a in a beach full of sand. And <laughs> what is that saying? I, I was trying to find it, but it's like um some sort of Eastern saying, but it's basically like um, in a field of a thousand flowers, you don't have to pick a single one. You can just enjoy the flowers. Mm, mm -hmm. And most of us are like picking a flower and holding on to it and pressing it into a book and saying, this is my flower. I've got to hold on to it forever. And you never look up to go, I'm standing in a field full of millions of these things. I can just enjoy it. I think money is that way. Creativity is that way. This thing we call success mm -hmm. is that way. Like it's just there. You can enjoy it. And, and doesn't mean there aren't times when it's it's not hard to pay your bills or or you're feeling blocked. I mean, that's part of the process too, but it it's available to all of us. Mm-hmm. I mean the 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 disciplines and the disciplines and practices of humanity, right? The practice of learning and practicing and failing and getting up again and and paying bills and all of those responsibilities. They don't go away. They're part of the fabric of the experience. But you can enter into that very human, you know, mundane beauty and the ordinary type experience of life with a different perspective which is that all this is to be enjoyed, um, maybe as opposed to having to kind of grasp and hold on to to just one element. I, I really enjoyed the way that you described that. Um, is there, are there, um, are there guiding principles or tools, um, things that you have relied on to help you navigate through this particular season um, of change or reorientation in your life? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that I've codified them, you did ask about feedback earlier, and I do have a handful of close friends at various stages of life whom I trust 
uh, not to tell me what to do, um, but to be my guardrails and mm. and to help me think through how I'm doing whatever I'm doing. And I just had a conversation with a, a friend of mine um, about that, and he said, "Hey, you know, when you were telling me about such and such, uh, my initial reaction was this, and I just I just sat on it and." Anyway, like here's what I'm thinking, and uh, I love you, and I trust you, and you know you're doing great, and um, and I was like, and that resonated. <clears throat> but I, I don't just have like sycophants. Like I have, you know, I, I was talking to a friend the other night, and he said, he goes, if you were going to do this this way, I don't, I don't know about that. I'm not saying that's wrong, but it just makes me feel a little bit uneasy. And so I have a community of people, a handful of people, not a lot of people, because um, I used to do, I used to ask everybody all the time, regardless of credentials, what they thought about <laughs> whatever I was doing. And it, it would make me crazy because I was like, well, if I do this, someone's yeah. not going to like it, but they're going to like it. And now I'm looking, and it could be confirmation bias, but I feel like I'm looking for resonance. And if somebody says something and it resonates with something inside of me, um, like recently, I had made a decision and I hadn't even thought about it. I thought that was the right thing to do. And my friend said, why did you do that? And I said, uh, and I just thought, I said, cause I was afraid. I was, a, hmm. that's why I did it. I, I was afraid of not doing that. Cause I thought this person would think I was a bad person. And he said, oh yeah, just, I, I don't think you have to do that if you don't want to. And I was like, oh, so it's not just like, you know, I mean, that's how it works. Uh, so I think, having people whom I trust where we've both been through some stuff together. Um, you know, I, I, I trust people to guide me. Um, and, and it's very conversational. I think that's been important. Um, being honest about what I want has become a very important principle for me and also a very mm. scary thing. How do you figure out what you want? That is the question. Right now, I, I don't. I instead, through experience, decide what I don't want. And what's left may be the thing that I want. And at that point, I get to make a decision. Right. I have found that- That's a useful strategy. I have found that to be more effective than like out of the- you know, <laughs> Out of the ether, out of the uh, you know quantum field of infinite possibilities, this is the thing that I want. That's so overwhelming to me. Instead, I start mm -hmm. with, I don't want this, I don't want this, I don't want this, and here's what I'm left with. A friend of mine is searching for a job right now, and that's what he's doing. He's going, I don't know if I should work on insurance or be a banker or go you know do this or go do that. Um, I, but I'm just going to make a list of all the things. You know, he's he's almost fifty. So I'm going to make a list of all the things over the past 30 years of being in the workforce that I haven't enjoyed. And then I'll see what mm -hmm. kind of job description I'm left with. And there's usually yeah. still like, and it's I could do this or that, but I'm going to do it this way. And um, that's been a helpful uh, exercise for me. Mm, the process of design constraint, um, which, you know, typically is applied in, you know, product design or, you know, all manner of things. But I think is is probably the most, imp one of the most important things to apply to our own lives, particularly when we're looking for some sort of um, pivot point in a journey. And yet it's probably one of the things that we misunderstand the most because we tend to think about 
design constraints as the as the shoulds and the oughts, the expectations of others or the demands of our context or um, the people around us that we somehow have to live up to. So they create a box or a shape that we then have to expand into to fill. Whereas actually, if we if we apply it. Um, correctly, it's exactly it's exactly what you're just describing. It's figuring out all of the things that create a firm boundary that you won't go near or that you don't want to expand or butt up against. And what that actually does is is then create a lot more space for ideation and creativity and exploration around uh, around this the place that is really safe to explore and 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 good to dive into. Um, so I think that's a fascinating it's a fascinating process and a, and a great strategy. Is there anything else? Yeah. <sighs> Having a community of people that will resonate with, um, uh, you know, kind of where I'm at and tell me if, if they have any questions or concerns, um, uh, listening to what I want, and then um, trusting that, trusting myself and trusting that whatever I want is going to be for the good of not just myself, but everyone around me. And I, I use that as an experiment, not like as like a philosophical ideology upon which I'll base <laughs> the rest of my life. But a, a friend said this to me, he goes, what if you just did what you want? I was like, no, 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 can't do that. Can't, can't do what I wanted. All these people are expecting all these things. And this isn't, my life will fall apart and can't do what I want. I, what I want is bad, I'm bad. And, and so he goes, what if you just did what you want and you trusted that that was good, not just for you, but everybody around you, including the people that you loved. And it's been a really interesting experiment for me to do that, even at times when I know it's not what is expected of me, and then to see good come from it. And I think, I mean, I, I could talk about that, you know, quite a bit. I think there's some interesting things that happen when you just simply get clear on what you want and do that very consciously, where it's um, it it, it mm -hmm. breaks some codependency uh, between you and other people. Um, and it also can be really inspiring to other people and it kind of frees them because if you and I are in a codependent relationship and I'm doing what I need to do to get you to act certain ways so that I can get what I need from you, which is what, always what codependency is about. Like I've got to do this so that you do this thing for me so that I can feel loved. And instead I can just feel loved. I'm freed up and that, and that freedom can also free you from whatever entanglements we had and everybody's free to be themselves. And the more that you're yourself, I think, uh, the better you're going to do everything. And one of the things that was so surprising to me about this journey was when I stopped needing to succeed, I was free not only to fail, but to succeed without anxiety, without achieving something and going, I have to hold on to this, which can actually be really destructive to future success. You know, I achieve this thing, I've got to keep doing this instead of taking the next risk, doing the next thing, which could... It, it can risk my status right. as successful, but it but that risk can also take me to new places. And so I was free to succeed and fail and really to love my work without trying to control it, without needing it to give me something. It could just, I could write this book and, it, and the book can do whatever it needs to do and it doesn't have to make me a best-selling author, right? It, I, like it doesn't make me anything, I just made it and people can enjoy it or not. And on the relationship side of it, when I stopped needing people as much to give me what I needed to feel okay, and I was like, no, 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 I am okay. Like I'm starting, I'm not even okay, I'm just, I'm me and it's fine. Um, when I started doing that, I became so much more patient with my kids because <laughs> I was no longer trying to control them. 
I could just love them for who they were. I still discipline them, but not get so emotionally entangled into all of them. Like, why can't you just do what I say so that you can make my life easier so that I can feel good about <laughs> things and be happy? You know? <laughs> I didn't say all those things consciously, but I'm like, my God, this is why I was doing that. And so if you don't need all this stuff, you're free to love it all. And if you love something, it's always going to be better, more meaningful, more fulfilling. And I now understand then you that you cannot truly love anything that you're mm -hmm. trying to control because control is based on fear and mm -hmm. fear and love don't go together. And so when you let go of the control because you don't need it, um, you really are free to love it all. And it's, and it's great. And who doesn't want a podcaster or a grocery clerk or a speaker or a therapist or a doctor or whatever who loves their work and loves the people that they're serving and loves their life. Cause it, cause if you don't need it to do anything for you, you can just love it for what it is. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious, you said something, uh, you said something about, um, uh, people loving their work and, um, loving the people that they're serving, which I think is actually something that came from, uh, one of your, one of your earlier books, certainly not the latest one. Is that correct? That concept Did that come from the art of work, perhaps something about, I guess well, so. yeah, it came from me and go. I wrote that. So yeah, sure. <laughs> well, I had a curiosity. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, definitely a topic. I had a curiosity. Sure. I just needed to prove that I'd read them. That was all. Just <laughs> um, I appreciate it. Yeah, but I was I was plug. curious actually um, as we as we come into land the plane on whether or not um, given so much of your creative um, output, so many of your you know books have been around um, success as an artist and success in work and uh, success in creation. Creativity. Uh, is there anything that you've changed your mind on uh, in those in those philosophies, um, in those ideas and tactics that you've spoken about and, and written about? Um, is there anything that's changed, or does it still hold true? You just have a different perspective on it now. Um, yes, and yes. <laughs> uh, two stories on that. Real quick stories. One is. Um, uh, I, I heard an NPR interview years ago where they were interviewing this um, author, and and, and they, they, he was in his sixties. And they said, um, "Do you believe all these things that you wrote, you know, a decade ago in such and such book?" And he said, uh, "I don't know." He said, "One of the greatest gifts of being a human being is that you have the ability to change your mind." He says, "This actually separates us from animals," and so. Of course, I think differently about those things because I'm different. And if I didn't, I wouldn't be growing. Um, and I love that. I talked to a novelist one time who, best-selling novelist, sold over 10 million novels. And he walks into a bookstore and sees all of all these books, you know, dozens of books that he's written on the shelves that have made him millions of dollars. And he wants to tear them all off the <laughs> shelf um, because they embarrass him. And the only thing that keeps him from doing that is the belief, the understanding that these are his journals. These are snapshots of what he thought and who he was at that time. And I mean, that's what a book is. That, that gives me a lot of freedom to write what I think is true now without being beholden to it later. Uh, the other quick story, I guess I had three stories, was um, uh, I was in a band in college and I wrote this song. And one night we're hanging out, talking about um, like touring with the band. And my friend starts quoting this song. And he goes, this is what I think this means. And this is for us. This means we got to go on a tour. 
And he was quoting the song that I had written. And he's like, this is what this means. And I, re I realized when I wrote that song, I had no idea what it meant. When I wrote those words, I didn't know what it meant. I just, this, you know, this is what people do sometimes. This is what creative people do sometimes. They, they create things, they don't know what they mean exactly. And that's happened to me lots of times where I write something and um, sometimes years later, somebody goes, that was for me. And I was like, I don't even remember putting that in the book. And uh, Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this in some interesting and humorous ways in Big Magic. Uh, that's probably worth reading. But I mean, this is kind of how creative work works, I think, especially if you think of this as like pulling something out of the ether or out of the collective unconscious that connects with people, uh, which I tend to think is true. Um, so yeah, I, I believe those things um, are true in a couple of ways. One, they're true because that's what I thought at the time. That's what I believed. Um, they're true in some ways where I wrote about something not fully understanding at the time that this was in a way sort of coming from the future, that it would make mm -hmm. more sense in the future. That has happened and keeps happening. Um, like there were things that I was writing about in the art of work about why success is not the point of a calling or a purpose um, that, and, and that this is not about you finding the thing that you're meant to do. It's about really becoming who you truly are. Like I was writing that stuff in the book without having lived it. Like I, I've just kind of tapped into some of those things and I had no idea. Yeah. Well, perhaps you were, perhaps you were in fact starting to uh, plot the journey. Um, uh, I have a, a, a friend and mentor who speaks often about the fact that, um, that our conscious self begins expressing the work that we have already been doing um, for years previously, um, but that it can take so it can take that long for our for our lived experience and our um, our contextual um, experience to kind of mesh together and merge and create something that's that's coherent enough that we can understand it and verbalize it. Um, and yep. so then it kind of manifests itself into the reality, um, which I think is a really fascinating idea that our subconscious is is constantly working on these new ideas and already we are becoming the people we will be in five years' time. Mm -hmm. I love that. Which yeah. is an extraordinary privilege at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It really is. Dare I say. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I wanted just to thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and um, allowing me to kind of probe around some of these ideas. Um, I think particularly people who are um, who are driven, who have um, understood and wrestled and struggled with success, will really appreciate a lot of what you've shared from your own um, from your own story in this episode. So I'm really grateful. What is the best place um, for people to find you, and where would you direct them in terms of um, your many works? If you were to if you were to plug one one place in particular, where would that be? Uh, my blog, my website is goinswriter.com, G-O-I-N-S writer.com. You can sign up for email updates, check out the podcast. There's My books and stuff are listed on there as well. And that's just my last name, goins, G-O-I-N-S writer.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, may the curiosity continue. Oh, thank Keep you. swimming, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hi, it's Tash, and it's time for the credits. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Transformationist. Please subscribe, rate, and review this episode wherever you listen to it, and share it with a friend. Visit thetransformationist.org for links to the resources mentioned in this episode, and to subscribe to our email updates. You can also share your transformation story with us there, and I would love to hear from you. 
As always, this episode is produced by Michael Yoda at Truthwork Media. Music is by Hans Van Vliet. For more about me and the transformation work I do, check out the website. This show is proudly made possible by Solar Feeder Consulting.